Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, fellow time travellers. I hope you're well. Uh, Thanks to everyone who's signed up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site so far. It's great to have you. Uh, The site's packed full of history and comment. It features a new video every week. Uh, There are competitions and there's a whole archive of great videos that you can catch up on if you're newly joined. I film it here in my home in Stirling. Uh, Occasionally my wolfhounds wander back and forth uh, in the shot. But most importantly, the site helps support the making of this podcast, my love letter to the British Isles. To sign up, simply go to patreon.com and search for Neil Oliver. Right now, it's time for the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. It absolutely blows my mind that in 1856, 1856, people were thinking along those lines and that by the 1880s, they had the project underway. In this episode, we're in the midst of the great Victorian engineering revolution. 8,000 years ago, the Strega Slide hit. A world-changing natural cataclysm that cast the British Isles adrift from Europe. To thrive and prosper, the new islanders had to develop a mastery of the sea. And those coming here from that time had to be determined and committed. In the 1800s, dreams of reconnecting the two landmasses were hatched. The engineering might of the age was brought to bear and work to reverse what nature had done was begun. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last episode, we stood on the beautiful Berwickshire coast as a powerful hurricane hit, smashing an entire fishing fleet to matchwood. Where are we this week? Paul, this week we're heading deep underground uh, and we're leaving the sea behind, more or less, although it's kind of it's present in the background uh, and, and you'll, uh, you'll, you'll soon see why. For thousands of years, the psyche of the people living on the British archipelago had been shaped and moulded by separateness. But in the 1800s, people began to dream of a reconnection to the European mainland. So this week we're in Kent, uh, next door to the White Cliffs of Dover, tunnelling beneath the Channel. (laughs) 
we're in one of those locations within the love letter to the British Isles that I, I would suspect that 99% of people have just never heard of. You know, well, there's places like Westminster Abbey and Stonehenge. This is the Victorian Channel Tunnel. And it opens from an, an anonymous little steel door into a cliff near Dover in Kent. You'll remember many, many moons ago on the, on the love letter, we talked about the Strega Slide up in uh, Montrose, which was the 8,000-year-old event. There was a, a subsea earthquake and a great tsunami, a great tidal wave crossed the North Sea from the vicinity of Norway and then smashed into the, the seaboard, the eastern seaboard of the British Isles and caused unthinkable devastation. The wave would have smashed inland 20, 25 miles, would have obliterated anybody and anything in its path. It was the most significant natural disaster in our part of the Northern Hemisphere in the last 8,000 years. There's been nothing else remotely like it. And amongst much else, it severed our connection to the European mainland. Up until that point, we'd been a peninsula of, of Northwest Europe, basically, or a continuation of Northwest Europe. So there was a land bridge between us and Europe, so people could walk. It went through periods of, you know, it was gradually being inundated ever since the end of the last ice age, when sea levels were lower because so much of the sea was frozen in the great glaciers. But as the ice melted and sea levels got deeper, there was a, a, a gradual process of low-lying land being gradually inundated. So that area, a vast tract of land, but it was being steadily flooded, but probably so slowly that people would have been noticing it, but it would have been happening over generations. And then 8,000 years ago, the Strega slide happened, and it just, it just nipped it. It just cut our apron strings to Europe, and ever after we've been an island. And anyone wanting to come here... And indeed, anybody here wanting to get to Europe had to get in a boat. And that set us on a trajectory, on a, on a destiny, as a seagoing nation. We had to be boat builders and navigators and sailors, and that, that has affected our destiny to a greater or lesser extent ever since. Do you think it's affected our psyche as well? Oh, I think without a doubt. I think because we were set apart, we were separate. And I think it's had a big role to play in making generations of British people feel that they're different from the people on the continent. Which isn't to say that everybody on the continent, they, they don't all think they're the same either. French people think they're different from German people, think they're different from, a, from Spanish people, think they're different from Greek people, but we were set apart. It also is a, a very vital defensive moat. There's been various times over the years where people have, have sought to invade. Napoleon, for example, Hitler. People have, have set their sights on, on Britain. And that narrow strip of water, it's only 20-odd miles between Dover and Calais, but it was still a lot to handle. And it kept us protected and kept us safe. And it, it did. It undoubtedly bred a state of mind. You know, we're an island race, as, as Winston Churchill said, and it, it's undoubtedly had an effect. But people have been coming and going anyway. It's not as though it kept anybody out, not really. The Romans came. The Anglo-Saxons came. The Vikings came. People have come and gone. So it's, it's not as though it's been a, an infallible defence. People from outside have been coming inside, and we've been going back and forth to Europe. It's a permeable border, but, but nonetheless, in, in times of stress... 
it's been a very useful defensive presence. But it did, it set us on a path and it definitely made us people who paid attention to shipping and to boats and to understanding the sea. You know, last week we looked at the great tragedy of, of Eyemouth and the fishing fleet, such that people are still being lost on the sea. No matter how modern we get, we never get that modern. The sea can still take us. If the conditions are right or actually wrong, then the smartest GPS and the smartest weather forecasting on the planet won't necessarily protect you from disaster. The sea is dangerous and the British have been a population who've been adapting to that reality for not just hundreds, but for thousands of years, courtesy of the, the Strega slide, because it was no option for us but to get on the water. And so it remained. So 8,000 years ago, we became an island, a set of islands, and that distinct separation from the main continued right up until the very modern era. And then finally, I mean, we all know there's a channel tunnel now. Trains and cars go back and forth through the channel tunnel. The channel tunnel that's there now has been there for so long that, you know, we just take it for granted. But it was a big step psychologically, as it turned out, to become reconnected physically to the mainland. And believe it or believe it not, it was actually, it wasn't the British who sought, first of all, to re-establish the connection. It was France. And they decided that, you know, why not? You know, why not create a tunnel under the channel? And the first of them was a chap called Albert Mathieu Favier, and in 1802, so as recently as that, 1802, he proposed a double-decker tunnel, a two-tier tunnel, You're running pretty much on the line that we've got our channel tunnel. He was looking at, at connecting the two narrowest points, and there are illustrations out there, there are maps and plans. He was imagining horse-drawn carriages coming and going through a, a tunnel lit up with lamps. It's quite a thought, 1802... But the engineering nous was already there. The ambition and the technology was already there, enabling people to think about executing what is a truly audacious plan. Nothing came of that particular pitch. The idea was floated, pardon the pun, but nothing came of it. But then in 1839, okay, so kind of like a generation later, a chap with the glamorous name of Louis-Joseph-Aimé-Tomé de Gamond alighted on the same prospect. And he was, oh, well, he was the kind of person you would have to be to try and get a plan like that off the ground. All on his own, really, he set out to prove a theory that he had. He knew that there was chalk on the French side of the channel, on the cliffs, and obviously the White Cliffs had over. He knew there was chalk on the other side. And he figured that it was a band of chalk under the sea and he knew that you could tunnel through chalk people have been tunnelling through chalk for thousands of years it's soft and so he thought if there was an unbroken band of chalk under the sea between France and England you could drill a tunnel through it so it's easier to go through chalk well, well yeah I mean if you're going to come up against something like granite you know or some other much harder material it's still doable but a lot more difficult chalk brings it into your reach basically given the, t the technology that was available. But in order to prove to himself and to others, he got his daughter to row him out, uh, right out into the channel and he would take a mouthful of olive oil, okay, 
and then he would weigh himself down with sacks of pebbles to give him weight. And then he would also have inflated pig bladders, okay? So he would be wearing like a waistcoat of pig bladders pumped up full of air, but he, he strapped to himself enough bags of pebbles to overcome their buoyancy. And then he would jump in and the weight of the pebbles would take him down to the bottom. And by his own estimate, sometimes he was 100 feet down. And the olive oil, he was a, he was a scientist, uh, and he had calculated that with olive oil kind of plugging his mouth, he could breathe out through it. He could kind of expire through the olive oil without having his mouth and his lungs filled with seawater. It was a kind of a barrier. He had worked all this out. And so he would dive down and he would, in, this, in, the, in the, whatever time he had available on the seabed, he would collect geological samples, fill a separate bag with them, and then he would cut away the sacks of pebbles and the inflated pig bladders would bring him up to the surface. And then he would get in the boat, catch his breath, presumably, and have a look at what he'd found. And by that death-defying technique, he, he satisfied himself that it was indeed chalk all the way across between France and England. There's pictures of him doing it, not, not photographs, obviously. There's illustrations of him doing it. And in 1856, I mean, he was, he was, he was making preparations for this for the longest time. And it, by 1856, he had submitted to Napoleon III plans for a tunnel that would have cost around £7 million at the time. Wow. Well, I mean, if you think about what they were proposing to do, it, it, it was a major exercise. And I think it attracted some attention. I think it attracted some enthusiasm from Napoleon III and others. But his scheme was just neglected. And de Gamond died in obscurity in 1876, his dream never having come to fruition. However, it was in the year of his death that, uh, believe it or not, a joint Anglo-French agreement was struck. And Sir Edward Watkin, who was the chairman of the South Eastern Railway, and Alexandre Lavallee, who was a contractor for the Suez Canal, okay, so somebody with a track record in major civil engineering projects, they came together. So for the first time, France and Britain are, are collaborating and they come up with an idea. And by 1880, they had developed a burrowing machine, a tunnelling machine. Everyone's seen the pictures of the massive machi rotating machines that cut the Channel Tunnel. Well, this was a steam-powered tunnelling machine that was invented by one Captain Thomas English. So it was a rotating drill. Okay, it's, it spun and it dug into the chalk. It was 33 feet long, this thing, this machine. Wow, that's big then. Yeah, big. And it, it, was, it was estimated that it could cut through half a mile of chalk a month. So considerable. You're looking at, a, you know, a 22-mile crossing. Okay, so you can do the arithmetic for yourself and see how long it would have taken. To get access, they dropped vertical tunnels either side, one in Dover, on the English side, and one at Sangat, near Calais. Now, Sangat is where the the existing channel tunnel comes up. That location had been identified, you know, from the get-go. So they started at it for months, and steadily the, the two ends started working towards one another. 
The plan was, and what they, they tried to do was to create, first of all, a pilot tunnel, seven feet in diameter. It's a bit like when, you, you know, when you're doing woodwork or anything else, you, know, you, you drill a pilot hole first before you put the, the screw in. Well, they were intent on completing a seven foot diameter tunnel from one side to the other. And then once they had got that done, they would have proceeded to widen it. To create something that was big enough to let vehicles come and go between. Uh, it was going to be a standard gauge railway line by that point. Okay, so trains would have come and gone. Now, it absolutely blows my mind that in 1856, 1856, people were thinking along those lines and that by the 1880s, they had the project underway. And it was so modern, they were using uh, mechanised cutting machinery powered by steam, which was the premium source of energy at the time. And they were basically looking to come up with the same solution to the problem that was eventually followed in the 20th century. It's an absolutely extraordinary feature to go and see. By 1882, there was about 6,000 feet had been dug on the English side and about 5,000 feet of tunnel on the French side. A considerable effort. And at that point, the British government in 1882 had second thoughts or had cold feet. The British government decided, look, we've been kept safe by the English Channel for hundreds of years. Maybe creating something that a European army could just ride through and invade us through is not the best plan. And so Britain pulled the plug on it. Despite all the effort and despite all the investment. But there it sits now. And so the Victorian Channel Tunnel is still there. If you go, if you go to the foot of Shakespeare Cliff, which sits between Dover and Folkestone, and if you know what you're looking for, there's a, an anonymous-looking grey steel door set into a red brick hatchway into the cliff face. It just looks like some sort of access to... You, know, you would just walk past it. You just wouldn't think... You just wouldn't give it two thoughts. But if you're with the man who has the key to the steel door and the steel door opens and there's a modern tunnel goes in, straight in it, just above sea level, and it connects with the Victorian Channel Tunnel. And out you go. And so you can walk out underneath the seabed and you can hear, you can hear the seabed above you. You can hear the, the pebbles and boulders moving about above you. And so you can get into this tunnel. Obviously, it's claustrophobic. It's incredibly modern. You know, you, you go in thinking it'll look really roughly done, but it's not as smooth. And you can see, like, the rifling. You know the rifling inside a rifle yeah. that, that makes the bullets spin? Yeah. Well, the, the nature of the machine that cut the tunnel, there's, so there's these uh, spirals just twisting away into the, into the dark and into the, into the distance, thousands of feet away ahead of you. Uh, and it, quite, quite near the beginning, just over on the left-hand side, there's someone, one of the workers has scratched in a bit of graffiti that reads, this tunnel was begun in 1880. <laughs> and, it's, and it's still there, some guy that was involved in, in getting the work underway. And his mark is just there surviving. And it's one of those, um, he signed it as well, the guy, <laughs> his name is William Sharp. Lost, lost forever, but he was, he was one of the, the Victorian tunnelers. Um, and it's just an overwhelming... It's, it's overwhelming to be confronted with Victorian ambition because the Victorians really were something else. 
which is to say the Victorian achievement and Victorian ambition is all around us. The bridges, the elegant bridges and viaducts and aqueducts that are everywhere, they were built by the Victorians who saw no difficulty in spanning the abyss and finding crossings. A vast majority of us, I think, still to this day live in Victorian housing stock. They built the massive cathedrals to banking, the massive cathedrals to commerce. They invented plate glass for their shops so that people walking along the high street for the first time could window shop, looking through these massive plates of glass. To a huge extent, we live in the world as it was conceived by the Victorians. The next time you're on a ferry leaving Dover and you're, you're crossing that grey water, you can think that somewhere down below you is a tunnel that was begun in 1880. And there was no reason why it wouldn't have been completed. Well, the only reason it wasn't completed was because the British government decided it wasn't worth the, the security risk. But that notwithstanding, it would have happened. There's absolutely no doubt about it that 100 years earlier, there would have been a channel tunnel. like it would have been a big psychological shift for the nation. Oh yeah, that separateness that had been created about these islands by the Storega slide 8,000 years ago, people had it in their psychology, the, the, the British government, the politicians had it in their psychology that separateness had served as well. And within living memory, I mean, within living memory at that point, Napoleon I, never mind Napoleon III, but Napoleon I had been kept at bay by those few miles of water. And it's just the case that there's a channel tunnel there now, but in the 1880s, it was the case that the time had not yet come to undo what nature herself had done. When you stepped in and walked along this 100-year-old tunnel with the English Channel right above your head, were you scared? Well. Well, conversely, no, because you think, if it's been here for 100 years, it's not going anywhere. It was damp, and there were drips, but it wasn't being held up by, by rotting wooden timbers or anything. It had its own integrity, born of the chalk. The walls were smooth, there was no evidence of any kind of collapse. You think, well, it's, it's, it's been here 100 years, it'll be here another 100 years. It's not going anywhere. I don't, I don't and haven't ever really suffered, I, although I use the word claustrophobic, I, I don't suffer from claustrophobia. I've been potholing. It, well, not potholing as such, but I've crawled through tiny tunnels, burrowed my way through the tunnels left behind by Bronze Age miners at the Great Orm in Llandudno in Wales, kicking and scrabbling through a, a serpentine tunnel that was barely wider than my shoulders. And, you know, I was slightly anxious doing it, but I, I don't suffer from claustrophobia and this tunnel was seven feet in diameter so you could stand up straight in it the whole time and there was no no sense of danger from it no the, the feeling to be had from it was just awe just being impressed by the fact that people from a Victorian world had set themselves the challenge had solved the problem and were busy making the solution into a reality when politicians decided to pull the plug but the ambition and the technical ability and the engineering know-how were already there it's just that it wasn't deemed that their time had come. We haven't the money, so we've got to think 
and think he did. A brain that took him from rural New Zealand around the world, experimenting with the building blocks of the universe. Easy company and affable. A genius who built one of the largest and best equipped laboratories in the world. Bringing together a team of legendary minds in Manchester, he's the father of nuclear physics. The man who first split the atom. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 